Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History and thank you for the great response we've had to the recent episodes. It's been really wonderful to see the the huge response we've had to some really important discussions about history and some great historians we've had on as well. So if you're a new listener, go back and check out some of the past episodes. There's been some absolutely extraordinary conversations on there, and I think today will be yet another one of those. We're joined from the UK by Alex Churchill, and Alex is a very well-established historian doing all sorts of great things over there, and she's going to be talking to us today about the Great War Group, her new initiative, which I think is really going to be something special. Now, I want to say at the outset, this is not an advertisement for the Great War Group. There is a a paid membership to be part of the Great War Group. This is absolutely not an advertisement. It's just a great initiative that I wanted to bring to people's attention. And for our Australian listeners, it's a great opportunity to get more Australian content involved in this community. So I wanted to bring it to your attention. Here to tell us all about it is Alex Churchill. Alex, thanks for joining us on Living History. Hey, how bizarre is this? You have literally just got out of bed and I'm sitting here with gin and tonic. It's fantastic. that We're in that difficult time of the year when the time zones are not particularly working in our favour, but uh, but, but yeah. I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll soldier on and get through it. Yeah, when you were like, do you want to do late your time? Like, yeah, I don't get out of bed before like 10 o'clock. Now I freelance, no way. <laughs> Alex, for those of us who are perhaps in Australia who aren't as familiar with your work as our friends in the UK, why don't you give us a bit of an overview of the Alex Churchill history story? Um. So just a, a geek in everyone's faces, basically. So I did books each year during the centenary for World War One. Uh, I did uh, Eton College and the First World Wars, just a chronology of the war through the eyes of boys who went to that school. I really hated the narrative of Lieutenant George from Blackadder and how all the subalterns with the Etonian accents were idiots because they really weren't some really brave kids there and also some really brave older men as well in those ranks still and then all the way up to the generals obviously like Plumer and Rawlinson and Goff were Etonians as well so it was a really unique way of looking at it then went to the complete other end of the spectrum and did uh, Chelsea Football Club in the First World War that's my football club the only football club um, as far as I'm concerned and it, but what was good about it is it wasn't a case of um, waving the flag and saying we were awesome. Check us out. Because Chelsea had only been around nine years when World War One started. So it's just very much a standard tale of how a football club reacted to the First World War economically, the players, the fans, the staff, how they got involved, what they did. Um, and I, we really enjoyed doing that one. Then I did uh, some joint efforts, did uh, commemorative volumes for the Somme and Passchendaele. 
and then a biography of George V in the First World War as well. Well, lots of great topics for us to get you back on the podcast to talk about. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about Eaton because, and, you know, George from Blackadder, anyone who's seen Blackadder will know Hugh Laurie's fantastic performance as mm-hmm. the, uh, the uh, muddle-headed officer. But the one thing that always uh, that I always think about that when we talk about this concept of Kitchener's new army and the, the, at the start of the war, this huge, the, the explosion in, in numbers of men in the British army. And the one thing that it, it just always strikes me is when you've got s- literally hundreds of thousands of men enlisting all at the same time, you are going to need NCOs and officers to lead those men. And you're going to have to find them from the new recruits. And to me, it always made perfect sense that you would go to these schools where you have people who had been the captain of the football team or knew about debating and leadership. You know, a lot of these qualities that these men had were priming them to be masters of industry, politicians, leaders in the community. To me, it always just made sense that when you had a group of men, you needed some of them to be leaders, that you would turn to those ones who had, you know, that that sort of background from the school. So it actually seemed to me to be quite a sensible decision rather than well, a uh, rather controversial yeah, not only that, but they all had obviously officer training corps as well. So they had some semblance of military training that you wouldn't have got in your local, the equivalent of the local comprehensive where you left school at 14, 15. So they are staying on later and then they have the same OTC system in universities as well. So at the outbreak of war, hell yes, you needed some of the, some of the university ones out there. There's a, there's a, kid who's just rode the boat race in 1914 he's 22 and he's with the artillery section of the oxford otc and he's out at the front in time for first eight he dies at first eight um so yeah absolutely you needed that leadership and a lot of them had had some semblance of training that could be easily rooted and actually the reason that etonians were staying on to 18 or 19 still at school is because it you could offset it you could say yes he could leave and go to war now because he's already turned 18 but he's in the OTC and you'll get him when he finishes school next term so well it's a fascinating topic I think we'll get you back on to talk about um you know the particularly (laughs) those um you know some of those decisions that led to the formation of the uh that British army during the first world war Mm -hmm. it's a a fascinating chapter look I'm going to address the uh the elephant in the room that all of our Australian uh uh, listeners are going to be asking, which is your surname and uh, oh. connections to Winston. <laughs> I mean, surely, you know, this can't be a coincidence. It's been become a running joke now since Statue Gate and all the racism nonsense um, a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago now that I do refer to him as Grandad on Twitter because I had so many abusive people um, telling me that my granddaddy or my daddy um, caused a genocide in India and all that crap. Uh, so I do joke about my granddad, but he's not actually my granddad. No, it's a lot more distant than that. So it splits off just before the first Duke of Marlborough and his family got rich and we were their servants. <laughs> Still, it's a decent pedigree. It, uh, I'm sure it, uh, I'm sure it's uh, yeah. history is in your blood, obviously. Well, on my dad's side, they all come down from Alexander the Great's army in Asia. So really, it's a wonder I haven't conquered Wales. <laughs> <laughs> that is, geez, that is a good pedigree. I wish I yeah. had something. Uh, I wish I had a bit more legitimacy in my own lineage to, uh, to to be in this space. But hey, we we've got to take what we can get. Um, tell us about the Great War Group. This is a fantastic initiative, and it's the reason you're here. Is that uh, as I said, it's not a paid advertisement. It's it's a it's an opportunity just to talk about what I think is a fantastic initiative. The word that I think of when we talk about the Great War Group is community, um, which is something mm-hmm. that if you're into history, um, that's something that's incredibly important. I know when I was starting out. First, with my, you know, I could never claim to be a, an academic expert historian, but when I first had this passion for history, jumping onto websites and joining communities and communicating with other people 
was um, was absolutely an essential part of, of my early learning. Absolutely. And I, let's just get it out of the way because people say, well, is there even a market for it? Because you've got the Western Front Association, you've got the Gallipoli Association, and we never set out to destroy either of those institutions or anybody else that already exists. But we feel that in 2020, there is a different way to look at it. I, I think from my perspective, as an individual and not on behalf of the Great War Group, I think the Western Front Association, that whole idea, that whole genesis worked better when the people that were in it had largely been on the Western Front. They had uh, something that bound them together and it was what joined them together. Um, and obviously we've reached a new stage in history now where they're not there anymore. And it was our feeling, not that they're rubbish and no one should join them because they have their way of doing things. And we spoke to them before we started. Um, and we've got utmost respect for anyone who's trying to further education in the First World War. But we wanted to take a more global approach. We wanted to break down international barriers. We didn't just want to be talking um, about one front. We didn't want to be talking about one nation. So we started this group in which we hope to approach it from a far more global perspective, which I think is more appropriate in 2020 and but that's how we want to do things that's not to say that other people are doing it wrong but we found out very quickly that there are a lot of people out there that want to give this a go and that there is a market for it so we're really overjoyed well i think it's a really fascinating time in history as well i really have this feeling that there's a big transition going on in a number of yep. reasons we've, we've lost all the great war veterans obviously yep we're not far away we're probably a decade away from losing all the second world war veterans and mm -hmm. there's a whole new wave of younger historians coming through. So it's a really interesting transition period, particularly in the study of the world wars, where it's going to move fairly substantially from this first-hand account and, and learning what we can from veterans and, 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 and reinvestigating stories that we've learned from veterans to us being the custodians of that history. And I, I think that's why initiatives like the Great War Group are so important, because it does need... Uh, it does need some sort of organisation as well. There's a lot of voices in the history space now, particularly with mm -hmm. media and online, etc. There are a lot of voices out there. So I think that's why initiatives like this are going to be so important to give it some sort of structure um, and, uh, and some sort of semblance of community. Absolutely. And I mean, so we, if you take the magazine, so members will be able to get four magazines a year and there'll be over 100 pages and so the first magazine has been put together by people from a dozen countries including Australia uh, we have a regular writer and, and he's he's an amateur he's not a historian he's got a day job and that but he's really passionate about the subject and he wanted to do a regular column and he's going to be myth busting uh, it's the first one that he's taken care of this is Scott Thompson the first one that he's taken care of is um Sandringham Company and whether or not they really were abducted by aliens at Gallipoli or disappeared in a puff of smoke or whatever else. Uh, so that's the first one he's looked at. We've got articles about a Danish contribution. I didn't know until Nikolai told me um, that the guy that wrote it, that a load of Danes were conscripted into the German army because part of their territory came under Germany at the time and had to be dragged kicking and screaming from their homes by their friends because they didn't want to go. And so there's a whole remembrance thing in Denmark as well. We've got articles. So the, the theme of the first magazine is remembrance. We thought that was apt to kickstart us. We've got articles on French remembrance in there, Australian remembrance, a really unique initiative by the Australian War Memorial and what that revealed about how Australians felt about remembrance and memory of the First World War in the interwar period. And 
it's important for us as well that we're not just preaching to the already converted. We've made it clear from the very beginning that we want to create a community and a space where no one feels stupid for asking a question. If someone walks into the room and asks you what a Gallipoli is, you're not going to scoff at them and laugh because everybody was there at some point. I think it's, and, fan- I think it's fantastic. Yeah, people want to learn and you should not crap on them for want of a better word you you should welcome them um, and that's what we've promised to do and so far it's going really well Well, I think that's great I mean one of the aspects I really like about that is you mentioned um, you know that there's no stupid questions you mentioned getting input from people who aren't necessarily academic historians with seven PhDs on the subject Mm -hmm. the reason I really like that is that I know that technology and social media and and the new types of media we have today they get a bit of a bagging and, and, and with good reason a lot of the time. Um, but this concept that everyone has a voice now, I actually find it in the history space quite exciting. It's revealing a yeah. lot of fascinating things. The gatekeepers of history are no longer there. History is no longer just for people in ivory towers at universities. It is now yeah. for everyone because history belongs to everyone. Everyone's got a family yeah. story about the Great War or, you know, we all, we all have a connection to history. And I think it's absolutely marvellous that for the first time, really forever, we now... If you have an interest in history and something to say about it, you do have space to say it. And again, I think that's why having that a little bit moderated and a little bit structured, like through Mm -hmm. forums like the Great War Group, I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to you before as well. Something else that we're doing is translating, I mean, into English. You'll notice that our tweets are multilingual when we put something out that's relevant to French or German or, I mean, a lot of the time I'm utilising Google Translate um, if it's not French, but um, we put it out in more than one language as well. I mean, the magazine is in English, but we're trying to, so we're already bringing Danish German stuff into English, French stuff into English. I was telling you about a Gallipoli project I've been working on as well. Uh, so it just to break down all those boundaries and show that the I mean as far as we're concerned that trenches and Gallipoli and the Western Front aren't all there is to say about the First World War I think we have a fantastic article by it by an academic I think he's doing either a master's or a PhD about why we view the war the way we do and how we've become railroaded into a certain perception and how and and it's brilliant because it's not insulting anybody but it it breaks down the last hundred years and explains why we went down that route how we got to this thing and and why when you're exposing kids to only a few weeks of trenches and poets everybody ends up with this cockeyed view of world war one and that's really something we're trying to settle the scale back the other way and show that this really was a worldwide conflict that it just affected so many more people than the ones that were sitting in the trenches. Well, when you make that point as well, I mean, from an Australian perspective, we are still affected by the tyranny of distance that that the mm-hmm. soldiers who went to the First World War were affected by insofar as we can't just jump on a ferry or you know, or into the channel and and uh, and be on the battlefields in a couple of hours. I'm 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 cons- you know, I'm eternally jealous of all my my <laughs> colleagues and friends in the UK and France who are on the battlefields and can be there within a couple of hours because for us it's quite an expedition. But that's an important thing for students as well. A lot of students study the Great War in Australia and some are fortunate enough to travel to the battlefields, often with us, with Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, which is you know a great privilege for me. But it's really difficult to get there. It's expensive and it's a long way away. And so any resource we can use to help bring that to life for students, I think is going to be extremely well received in Australia. Well, the, uh, this 
this is definitely for Australians. I was just talking to you before we came on air about the fact that I've just got back from eight days or eight or nine days in Gallipoli with Peter Kins, love of my life that he is, Peter Hart. And uh, I took a drone and we've been collecting footage and I've been interviewing him and interviewing uh, just paying punters on the tour as well. And we've been putting together a virtual battlefield tour. So not only can you see drone footage of the battlefield, but you'll have, I mean, when my friend Rob talks on camera and he's brilliant, he doesn't know anything. He goes because he likes it and he's enthusiastic and he likes to drink ups in the evenings and he wants to learn, but he's not a historian. And to hear him explaining to you how he felt the first time he set foot on the beach and realised that actually it's not that big a beach at all. And the, and having people explain to you how they've just hiked down to Y Beach and it's not even a beach, it's a cliff and showing you that cliff. So it's like an immersive battlefield experience for people who aren't fortunate enough to go there is something else that we're work, working on. And we're looking at that for four fronts already. Um, COVID has put some of it on the back burner for a while but yeah four fronts already but Gallipoli is the one that we've managed to do all the work on so far so we're really looking forward to turning that into something that can is going to be a resource for kids and enthusiasts everywhere. Yeah that's really exciting um it's again the technology just making uh, our understanding of history um even more thorough. Tell us more about what the experience will be as part of the Great War Group. So you've mentioned the magazine, which sounds fantastic, but um, I assume there's a forum where people can come and exchange ideas and, and ask questions. Yeah, so there's an online forum, and we kind of we when we do our did our research and our market research, it's it's kind of apparent that Twitter and Facebook have superseded like the old school forums and stuff. But we put one there anyway because we figured it was nice to have a place for people to go and say hi. My name is. I've joined. How good um, are forums? This is I just what mean, I'm interested how, in. How they cool. are. They're fantastic. I mean, but, old school, but they're they're great, and they yeah. do have a very important place. If you have a specific interest in a subject, the fact that you can come together with other people and exchange those ideas. I mean, Facebook works yeah. okay for that sort of thing, but there's nothing like having a forum where you can post a topic. Because you can get attention. You can say, you can post a subject, I'm doing some research into my great uncle who served at Gallipoli, can anyone help? Yep. And it can get attention and only people that are interested in that topic can then respond to it. Yeah, the thing about Facebook and Twitter is that once it scrolls down, if you aren't on in within a couple of hours of it, going up you may not see it whereas like you say a forum is a notice board where people can pin something to it and say this is where I'm at this is what I'd love to know more about Uh, so we have put one up there we don't expect it to be the be all and end all but we definitely wanted to give people a way to hit each other up and find people with similar interests Uh, we also today launched a library so we have thousands of ebooks and members can download 10 of them a month so 250 of them went up today and they include all of the original Michelin guides some are in French some are in English or most are in English I think Uh, but also unit histories from America Australia Britain Uh, then memoirs from all fronts all countries that were published way back so there's uh, it's an academic resource if you're studying something in particular or you just want something to read by the pool on your kindle then you can go in type in Gallipoli or whatever front you're interested in. And yeah, there's all that material there for you as well. And this is something that we want to be building all of the time. So I think our our ultimate plan is to build as much online content and collate content as well, so that it's like a one-stop shop for people who are interested in the First World War. You log into that members area and it's just the war is at your fingertips. I I mean, the Michelin guides, 
how extraordinary are they? For those who, who don't know, these are original guidebooks to the battlefields that were printed by the Michelin Company in the 1920s, the early 1920s, when battlefield pilgrims were first going over there, and they are just extraordinary. Whether you intend to visit the battlefields or not, read these books because they're unbelievable. They're talking just about the descriptions. trying to get from uh, Ypres to Messines, which today is a beautiful you know, multi-lane road, which you can drive in 15 minutes. They're talking about take your car for the first few miles and then walking is really the only alternative. And I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary because of the yeah. damage. You know, the road... Because the clearance really wasn't finished, was it? Exactly. The you road is right still destroyed things. and pitted with shell holes and trenches run across it. So you'll have to park your car after a mile and then walk the rest yeah. of the way. And it's They're just... history in themselves now, aren't they? Which is brilliant, I think. It would... It... It just must have been the most extraordinary time, not just for people who'd lost loved ones, because that would have been extraordinary, but people have always been fascinated in visiting battlefields. These battlefield pilgrims, it was a huge industry in the 1920s for people to go over and walk the battlefields of the Great War and for veterans to take their families over and show them where they fought. And for decades, they were still trying to repair the ground and and, and rebuild. So those Michelin guides are a wonderful insight into that, those original battlefield pilgrims, which, as you say, is now effectively a chapter of history separate to the the Great War in and of itself. Um, so it's yeah. brilliant that those guides are up there. I've been buying the reprints whenever they pop up, but um, yeah. it's fantastic. I mean, the reprints will set you back about 10 quid, but I'm not sure what that is in dollars. But an original one of those is going to cost you. So the idea that you can at least have a digital version to read on your device if you're going or if you just say you found out that, I don't know, Uncle Billy was killed on the Somme, you can get the Somme one on your phone and have a look and it'll tell you more about it but like I I was looking at the Reims one the other day and there was a whole history of the city in the front going back to the ninth century and I was like okay this is overkill but I'm really enjoying it. Alex how did you even come up with this concept it's a great concept and it's something that I think is is needed at this time of, of, of overload of information how did you even come up with this concept for the Great War Group? Do you want the honest answer? I'd love the honest answer drank a load of gin and tonic one night and called Bethany Moore, who's my co-founder, and went, let's do this. And she went, (laughs) yeah. And then two days later, we had 1,500 followers on Twitter and we were like, oh, crap, now we've really got to get this off the ground. It was People have been amazing. I mean, like in the middle of a pandemic, we crowdfunded £5,500 in three and a half weeks. Fantastic. um, To get – and that was to get a website built, a proper website – because there's nothing worse than launching something and the website doesn't work. Um, there's been some recent experience of that elsewhere in the field, but just the response from everybody is like from talking to friends and some of them were saying, and my co-author, he won't mind me saying this from the Somme and Passion Dog, but Andrew Holmes, he said like, I didn't think there's a market for it, to be honest. I mean, the WFA isn't building any bigger and I just don't think it's there. I think it's basically for old people and that was his honest opinion and within a few days we had contact with commonwealth war graves and they're going to be hosting our first conference next year supposed to be march i wonder now if we'll have to start looking at a bit of a later date um but yeah we're going to be having it at their headquarters and they are putting four pages in the magazine every time to update people on what's going on at cwgc new initiatives i mean the first two things they've written about for us for the first magazine is about the wargraves fc the football club of all the staff after the war and then a big thing about the teatvale memorials uh reconstruction and an app that's being launched for people to access information so it's really good to have them on board as well and just just overwhelming with how many organizations just 
want to be involved from the beginning it was like we had the idea and instead of just working on it behind the scenes for ages and then launching we launched it on the same night of the drinking um which meant that everybody's been in on it from the start so we could hear people's ideas we held an open forum where I think we had we had a few hundred register for it so they either tuned in live and asked questions or when if you signed up for it and like say you were in Australia and it was the middle of the night then you got a recording of the meeting so you could watch it afterwards we've already done a live event with Commonwealth Wargraves about Passchendaele uh, just we're organizing with schools as well some learning sessions and what they're turning out to be is tailored learning sessions for individual schools where our trustees get online and build on the curriculum so the teachers have got another resource to go to beyond what they usually would have where they can put classes on zoom in front of us and we can have a discussion about where they're at in their curriculum and and especially now that they can't get to the battlefields at the moment I think it's going to be invaluable that's fantastic I mean you mentioned COVID and that's one of the things that I think is a silver lining of COVID and and hopefully what a lot of us will look back on is that it did give us more time and a new perspective on what we were doing. You know, for me, it's enabled me to do a lot more podcasts. You know, we've got books coming out now under the Living History brand. Don't talk to me about podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I've we done like we haven't... 300 in the last six months. Yeah, history. Including his... wrangling 25 cast members of Band of Brothers at one point. So Yeah, this is History Hack. Uh, if, you haven't, yes. if you haven't checked it out, definitely do. Um, it's, it's a hell of a <laughs> hell of an achievement. Well, I didn't even realise we we're going to wander into this territory, but I mean, it's a... Right. Um, it's a if hell you'd of have told me that halfway through lockdown that I would have had on my laptop Sean Bean, Yoan Griffith, and all the Band of Brothers cars, I would have thought you'd have lost your mind. But yeah, it's <laughs> slightly um, odd. And you're doing it as a daily podcast, which is just extraordinary. For those of us that are weekly, I can't even begin to imagine the, the, the commitment it required to, to do a daily <laughs> podcast. But yeah. that's another thing for people to check out when they're uh, when they're in their in their downtime, roaming the internet. Yeah. Check out check out history. Yeah, Hack. definitely. Really great. Um, yeah, we've got everything from the dinosaurs to space and a drunken it was weekly now monthly down the pub thing where we have a historical debate as well last time it was the greatest book in history and i think everyone will cry when they hear who won but yeah <laughs> well alex it's great <laughs> stuff that you're doing i mean everyone should check out history hack and particularly if you have an interest in the first world war the great war group and you can find out all about it at greatwargroup.com uh, and we want to get more Australians on there. I'm signed up and we want other Australians to join us on there uh, mm-hmm. to to add to the community and to really enhance the uh, the Australian contribution to the site. Alex, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the project. It's it's really exciting. It's a great initiative and, and thank you for coming on to talk to us about it today. No, thank you. I was exhausted at my wits end when I came on this call and now I'm all excited again. I'm going to edit that last article. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for talking to us, Alex. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.